Content warning. This series will discuss topics that may bring up painful experiences for you. Please take the time to surround yourself with good medicines. If need be, pause the playback and go for a walk, stretch, have a glass of water, and come back to the show when you feel comfortable. Welcome to the Métis Speaker Series. I'm your host, Darian Kovacs. On this podcast series, we will be exploring learning, healing, and rebuilding within the Métis community. Our goal is to create awareness of and generate discussion about Métis issues, as well as how to heal from and move forward in a healthy way. We hope to reduce Métis invisibility in BC through the personal stories from our Métis community members. This show is brought to you by Métis Nation BC and Jelly Marketing. Peter, let me start off. Just tell me a bit about yourself and kind of your connection to the Métis community. Well, I'm 52. Let's see. I was born and raised in Campbell River, yeah, on Vancouver Island, and taught skating for a good portion of my career. Had national champions back when I was going to university. I always knew I was Indigenous as a young person, but we didn't know exactly how, right? So it wasn't until I was in university that some other family members were like, no, we're Métis. So I started exploring that back in the 90s and got my citizenship back then before there was a provincial card. It was all community cards back then. Then once the provincial card came in, I flipped over to that. And so, yeah, I've been involved for well over two decades now, I think, starting in the 90s in Nanaimo when I was in university. My parents, or my mom, is Métis. She lives in Campbell River still with my dad. And they're members of North Island Métis Nation. And my sister is as well, and my cousins. And yeah, it's been pretty good kind of learning more about what being Métis means, right? Like reading about it and then being part of the community. So in Chilliwack, I'm president of Chilliwack Métis now, and we're doing lots of good things around the community, thanks to some good support from MNBC. And yeah, it's probably going to be a full-time thing for me when I retire from the public service in about four years. I think I want to sort of focus my life around strengthening the Métis Nation in some capacity. It's amazing. Now, Peter, I understand you have a story to share with us, and it's about your son, Nick. If you could tell us about Nick and and kind of his story. Sure. Yeah. So unlike me, when I was growing up, like I said, I only knew I was Indigenous or had Indigenous roots through my mom and my grandma. I didn't want the same thing for my children. So I wanted to make sure they knew they were Métis right from the time they were born. Nick was really proud of that. Nice. He was probably five or six, we were living in Hope, BC, hmm. and he had First Nations friends and they lived on a reservation. He said, Dad, where's our reservation? And so it was an opportunity to kind of talk about Métis people. They didn't try to colonize us in the same way. And Nick really ate that up. He he was like always wanting to learn more. And so when the provincial cards came in, I wanted to make sure he had his card. And he was 14 at the time when I applied for his card. And his brother was 16. And he got his card. It didn't have his picture on it because if you were under 15, your picture doesn't go on your card. It's just your name. Once you're over 15 or 16 or something, then they put your picture on. So he was kind of upset because he really wanted that card to show his friends, right, with his picture on it. (laughs) So, But around the same time, he started to struggle with drugs, you know, around 14. He was using marijuana, which we were not happy about, but it went into 
something more serious in about January of 2015, and that was methamphetamines. So he was living with his mom and I various times, you know, a week at his mom's, a week with me, because we were um, separated at the time. And when he was at my house, I would always search him and check his bag. And because I knew I kept finding evidence of drug use around, like broken light bulbs with burn marks on it and tinfoil rolled up and burnt and, and things like that. So I just confronted him on it and um, he got upset and left and wouldn't come back to my house anymore because I was very strict about stuff like that. So he went to live with his mom and over the course of a few months, his problem got a lot worse to the point that his mom took his phone away. She was paying for the phone, so it was technically her phone anyway. Um, she took it away and he was high on meth and he wanted it back and he decided he would scare her by holding a machete to her throat, demanding his phone back. And of course, she called 911 and that's what sort of started this hugely negative experience with the justice system. That's, that's what started it was that call to 911. The police were really good. They treated him well. They called me. They said, hey, your son assaulted your wife and, and he can't stay there, obviously. Can he stay with you? I said, sure, but he knows the rules, no drugs. He came and stayed with me. He was charged with assaulting her. And how old is he at this point? He's 15. 15? Yeah. Yeah, he was 15 years old. Actually, he wasn't even... I guess he was just barely 15 because his birthday is March 28th. And this happened on March 20, or March 30th and April 1st, right in, in around there. So he had just barely turned 15 years old. Yeah. And I didn't realize at the time, but uh, when a youth is charged with a crime and is uh, pleading guilty and gets probation, they're supervised by Ministry of Children and Family Development, same people who run the child welfare. And we know what issues we have there. But I thought, well, I work in the justice system. I should be able to navigate this. I'm big on accountability. I'm big on owning your mistakes. Nick was too, once he was sober. And he felt really, really bad about what he had done to his mom. So he wanted to plead guilty. I remember going to court with him and there was the probation officer who said basically, like it was, we were, we were just wanting to get him help. We didn't want him to necessarily be on probation. We just wanted him to get help for his addiction. And there wasn't any help out there. The probation officer said, the only way to get help for a youth who's addicted in BC right now is to plead guilty, go on probation, and then we can access programs. And so we presented that option to Nick. He said, okay, it's 18 months probation. I'll plead guilty. I sort of dangled the carrot and said, you know, sometimes they can apply to the judge to have that shortened if you do well over the course of a year. So he pled guilty. And then that's when I had the light bulb came on. Something's not right here because when he had to have his first meeting, we had to go to the child welfare office, Ministry of Children and Families. So I thought, why is Youth Justice, why is BC Corrections sharing a building with Ministry of Children and Families? So I just thought, oh, maybe they have overlapping clients or something. I don't know. But I got in there and that's when I realized that it was going to be Ministry of Children and Families supervising him. And we had problems right from the start. The probation officer wouldn't communicate with me. He took Nick in for an intake interview. I was very specific with the court-appointed lawyer as well as the probation officer that 
My son's Métis, and that's important to him. So you need to understand that. There's Gladue issues that come up. I wanted him supervised by an Indigenous probation officer, but they said, oh, no, we don't have one of those. We only have these two, and so you're getting this person. It was pretty clear from the start that this person didn't really understand what the Métis are or who we are. So from there on in, we just had this communication gap as we were leading up to the program, which was in Campbell River. I said, well, why can't he stay with my sister or my mom and dad? Because that would be better for him. The probation officer said, no, that's not how it works. You got to go through this long clearance process because we're liable and blah, blah, blah. So we have pre-approved people that he'll stay with. So I kept bugging the probation officer. When's he going to get the program? When's he going to get the program? And I think he was getting annoyed with me. So one day he just finally stopped responding to my messages and Eventually, he said, okay, I've got him in this program in Campbell River. It starts on, I think it was June 3rd. I'm going to drive him to the airport and put him on a plane and fly him to Campbell River. And somebody's going to meet him on the other side. And I said, well, why can't I just drive him? Like, I could drive him there. I live there. I grew up there. Nope, that's not how it works. We put him on a plane. Somebody meets him there. So it was the weekend before he was supposed to leave. And uh, he relapsed. He disappeared and he didn't come home one night and uh, he had been using. When he did finally come home the next day, I could tell he was high and he had been using. So I reported it to his probation officer. The probation officer presumably had that information because I told him, I sent it to him on text. I still had the text. I also had taken Nick to the doctor to get a, you have to do kind of a pre-programmed medical. So kind of a medical history. But he didn't have a family doctor here in Chilliwack, so we just went to a walk-in clinic, and the doctor refused to sign off on the form. I had completed the form. I had said everything on there. Nick had a prior self-harm history. That was on there. I provided that to the probation officer as well. Nick went to the program on June 3rd. Probation officer showed up at my house, put him in the car. Nick and I had a bit of a struggle because he kept getting out of the car, and I said, no, you have to go. You can't stay. You got to go because if you don't go, they'll put you in jail possibly because it's a condition of your probation. So he finally got in the car and that was the last day I saw him was uh, June 3rd. He, um, They were driving out of my complex and I just remember his little face staring at me in the little mirror as they drove. <laughs> just thinking about that image. It's kind of hard because I still see it like yesterday. And I always wonder what would happen if it was me that was driving him. Sometimes I can tell the story and not cry. Sometimes I do. Today is one of the days that I do. <laughs> but yeah, they left. He flew over. He got into the program. They were excellent, the people in the program. It was a John Howard program called the Head Start. And finally, somebody was kind of taking his culture seriously. They made sure he was with a family that were... I think the, the lady was in uh, First Nations and the, ma the man wasn't, but they were really nice people. I kind of had a, a mutual contact that knew them and said they were good people. So I was quite comfortable. The people in the program were phoning me on a daily basis or emailing me saying how he was doing. I had mentioned to them that he had relapsed and they said, yeah, we can kind of tell he was... Um, he was exhibiting signs of somebody who had been using meth, but coming off of it, kind of the shuffling that a lot of them do from side to side and things like that. So they were aware that he had relapsed. So they were keeping a close eye on him for that reason. 
I think it was the first two days, he was a little standoffish in the program, not really communicating a heck of a lot. But by the third day, he met with, a, I think, an education planner or something. He was starting to open up. They were helping him plan the school year. That was part of the program, was he got caught up on some of the school that he had missed from the previous year. And they were going to help him get caught up, so he was going to be on track the following fall. He was very receptive with the teacher. They said, yeah, he's settling in quite well now. Then it was probably, well, it was June 9th, I remember. It was six days into the program that I came home from work and all of a sudden my phone rang and it was one of the ladies that worked in the program who kind of ran it. And I could tell she was a bit frantic. She was in her car and she said, I just got a call from, I think it was the hospital or something and said that Nick tried to hang himself is all she said. And I said, what? And she said, yeah, I I don't know any more details. I'll call you. I'm on my way to the hospital right now. So I said, okay. And of course, I'm in shock because she said, tried to hang himself. That sounded to me like he was still alive. But I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe that that would happen. But Nick had had that self-harm history in the past where he had kind of cut a little bit. And things like that. Those were all on his healthcare forms. I didn't hear anything for probably an hour. And of course, I'm just pacing back and forth going, when are they going to call me? I know how far Comox is from Campbell River. That's where she was driving from. So I knew she should have been there by now. I knew she should have already had some sort of prognosis on how he was doing. And I'm trying to get my bags packed to get over there. I had guests over at my house. So I was sitting there throwing a bag together getting ready to leave to head over there. And then I decided to phone my sister because she's a nurse at that hospital. And I said, can you go check on Nick? They said he tried to hang himself. And so she went and checked on him. And she was the one who called me back and said he was gone. To this day, I've still never, ever officially been told by the government that my child died in their care. I mean, of course, they know that. But they never, ever acknowledged it, really. I had my sister go up there and give me that news. He died in the same hospital I was born in, which was so strange to me. Because that hospital's gone now. They demolished it. But I was born in that hospital in 69, not, not that long after it opened. I think it opened in the 50s, late 50s. But he died in it just before it closed. And like I said, to this day, the government never, ever said, your son has passed away. It was my sister who told me. Once a bit of time passed, we discovered that people in the program never ever received that information about his self-harm history. And they said, had we known he had the self-harm history and he relapsed, which they did know, we would have screened him out. We won't take somebody that's that high risk into a program like Head Start. At that stage, we'll wait till there's a period of sobriety before we take somebody with a self-harm history. The probation officer never shared that information. When we went to an investigation after they did their own investigation, MCFD, which is kind of one of those cover-your-butt sort of experiences, and I knew that's what was going to happen. The probation officer tried to deny that I had ever given them the medical forms, but I had records of it on my, my cell phone. I had a record of the conversation saying I dropped off his health forms. I explained why the doctor didn't sign it, but I said all the information's on there is accurate. 
If they do need a doctor, I can drive them to Hope to his old doctor. They can sign it off or I'll find another doctor in town, but otherwise the information is accurate. He never sent that. They couldn't find it on the file. I suspect it got shredded once he passed away as a way to cover their tracks. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. I mean, he's gone. So that's sort of the long and the short of what happened with, well, Nick's story, basically. His death was investigated by the representative for children and youth after MCFD did their internal investigation. They did a much better job. That report is called The Last Resort. It's on the representative's webpage. Came up with five recommendations. We found there were other gaps in his case, particularly around respecting his culture, around sharing information, around assigning what they call an ISP worker, an intensive support worker. ISP is the acronym. He never had one of those assigned to him. There was all kinds of little things that just where the ball was dropped, as there are often in these cases. So from here on in, we're just trying to make things better for youth that are involved with the justice system, but involved in the child welfare system in general. It doesn't have to be just justice, but yeah, that's our goal is to, well, for me specifically, is trying to take this absolutely tragic and traumatic experience and trying to find some sort of light in there. You know, I can't bring him back. We can't bring him back. But we can try and make sure that we don't lose other children. And uh, and that's the key, I think. And that's what Nick would want. You know, I look back and the way he was, as he was a child growing up in Hope, we used to live down the street from Coquihalla Elementary, where he went to school. And him and his brother, both very compassionate people, just how they were raised. They would bring kids home that they knew had less than them. I remember specifically a couple of brothers that they would magically miss the school bus and we'd get home from work and there'd be extra kids at our house and they say oh they missed the school bus to go home so uh can they stay with us and of course we'd phone the parents and (laughs) make sure it was okay but that was very typical for nick so for me i look at how can i honor him right and that's one way is by reaching out and doing something for people who have less and making sure that they know that they're just as important and as capable as some privileged kid growing up who's rich, who's got everything, right? So that's kind of the focus of what I do now outside of my job. Well, even in my job, I try to do that. But it's kind of where we're at today, six years later. It still feels like it happened just yesterday, but it's coming up on seven years actually in June. So it'll be seven years, June 9th but it still feels pretty fresh. Thank you for sharing that story. The courage and bravery to do that was was incredible. So thank you for that. Like I said, sometimes I can do it and not cry (laughs) if I can get myself in the right frame of mind. But I just, yesterday, I really felt, I had a really, really intense day yesterday, work-wise, non-work-wise. When I answered some questions on email and looking through old photos, it just, I felt his presence pretty close by. And so I just... I didn't do anything yesterday other than work from home remotely, doing a lot of typing and stuff. But man, I felt drained, eh? Because when you go through things like this, sometimes you can just have days where you you feel your loved one close by, which is good. But it can also be emotionally draining because it brings those emotions close to the surface. Yeah. So I'm still experiencing some of the residual of that today. 
you know? Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I love that you say you are using your time and energy and resources now to try to fix things. And, and so this doesn't happen to other people. When you think of cultural programs, services, supports, what do you think could have benefited Nick in that situation? Well, definitely having access to treatment. You know, that would have been the first thing. But you have to strike when the iron's hot, when somebody's in full addiction. He wanted help right from the outset. He said, this is a problem for me. I just held a machete to my mom's throat. I need help. And I really thought there was help out there. There really isn't, or there wasn't at the time. It's getting better. But at the time, there wasn't, unless you had about $50,000 to spare, just right there. And even then, it wasn't easy to find. I remember reaching out to Tanya DeVoren. She was Minister of Health, still is, right? Or Director of Health, or whatever the title is. But that was probably around February or March when Nick was living with his mom. And she was saying the same thing. You know, I really wish we could help, but Métis Nation had no access to anything like that at that time either. You know, it's better today, but had there been immediate access to a bed, a treatment bed, I don't think we'd be sitting here having this conversation right now. He'd be, you know, a 21-year-old, 22-year-old, healthy individual, hopefully going to university or working or something, uh, making the world a better place. But it wasn't, it wasn't available. The other thing is once he was in conflict with the justice system, we needed people who knew or understood Indigenous people. It was a very colonial experience going through the courts. Court-appointed lawyer was an old white guy from Abbotsford who was about 70 years old. I don't even think he knew who Gladue was or what the Gladue decision was because he just kind of sloughed it off as not important. Never even got mentioned in court, which is, you know, strange to me. So, And, and those that don't know what that is, can you, can you share that? Just a description. So the Gladue case was an Animo case, a woman who had murdered her husband. And that's the case that set a precedent in terms of when an Indigenous person ends up in court. We have unique backgrounds and histories, right? Like we got disconnected from our culture. I was disconnected from my culture. My mom was, my grandma was to a certain degree too. So we have unique histories and, and experiences that the court needs to understand. And it allows somebody to come in and look at the unique circumstances of somebody's background that only Indigenous people have. So they call it the Gladue reports, and that's basically a social history on the individual appearing in court. So they kind of put the brakes on things. They do a social history, and they bring that report to court to tell the judge, here's the unique circumstances in this case. Now, in Nick's case, maybe it would not have made a difference in terms of sentences. But to me, that wasn't the important thing. The important thing was telling the story and putting some thought into what's best for this individual. So that got missed. And we've got the Métis Nation justice strategy that's sitting with the province right now. I don't know where it's at. I brought it up with John Horgan about maybe three months ago when I saw him at an event. And I know it's there. I know it's sitting there. He, he, he knows it's being dealt with. Hopefully that's going to change things for Métis people in the justice system. We'll see. With the First Nations justice strategy, I just attended their open house for their First Nations Justice Council. And they've got these little satellite offices up in the north mostly right now that are called Indigenous Justice Centers. I don't know if that's going to be something that we'll be able to access at some point or if we'll have our own justice centers. 
But something needs to change because we can't keep taking Indigenous people and putting them through this colonial sort of meat grinder. And that's really what it is, the justice system. It grinds people down. It robs you of your soul and your spirit. And they try to help you while you're inside with school and programs, but it's few and far between because you got lockdowns, you got COVID, you got all kinds of things that get in the way. And then they release you. And oftentimes you're maybe sometimes even more damaged than when you went in. So we need to change things and 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 I'm hoping things change soon with that Métis Nation justice strategy. Wow. And, and as a parent, what do you think as far as like cultural programs, services, supports could have been in place or, or that you'd love to see in place? And, and maybe they are now since these years later, but... Yeah, well, the Head Start program is an excellent program and it's culturally sensitive. I know that. I've got all the time in the world for those types of programs, for youth especially. There are some wilderness type programs that I think are also great for connecting with the land. To me, there's a lot of power in nature. I don't know a heck of a lot about those programs, but I know that they're highly thought of by the people that deliver them and the people that have been through them. And it's changed lives. I know people that have gone through them and have said that program changed my life. It got me back on the path, the right path. So definitely need more of that. Once you're an adult and I work in the system, you know, I'm an assistant warden at a federal prison. And I got to be careful about what I say because there's, <laughs> you know, rules around harshly criticizing my employer. So I'll try not to harshly criticize them, but I am going to criticize them. They're not doing things in a very forthright manner, I'll say, when it comes to Indigenous corrections. So uh, they, there's a lot of um, bells and whistles that they put there to make things look fancy, but there's not a lot of substance. And the men that I work with, the Indigenous men, are clamoring for it. They want it. There's some good things that are happening, like elders. Like, they need more of them. But, uh, you know, give you an example. I have an Indigenous unit that I oversee. And we just are going through a very, very unique time in Métis and First Nation history with the discovery of remains. And it's triggering a lot of people. It triggers me because of losing Nick. But their solution is, well, just get them some time with the elders, which makes no sense because a lot of the elders are going through their own trauma and reliving trauma based on the same stories. So you're asking people who have been impacted to help other people who have been impacted. And that's a lot of pressure to put on elders when it comes to assisting men in the corrections with dealing with trauma. So, I mean, you need trauma counselors, people who come in and are trauma-informed outside and over and above elders, take the pressure off those elders. They don't see that. You know, I pointed it out several times, but you get sloughed off as, I don't want to swear, but they'll call you a poop disturber or whatever, right? They don't want voices like mine around the table, uh, the corporate table, because I'll just tell it like it is and I'm interested in getting things done. I want to I want to see progress for our people in federal corrections and provincial corrections. But the suits that sit in the ivory tower are often not indigenous and don't see the importance of it and my voice doesn't sound like their voice so it kind of gets pushed to the side. Which is unfortunate. And the other thing I'm trying to change in federal corrections is um who they hire. 
when it comes to Indigenous. We have a lot of people that are, you know, saying they're First Nations or Métis, and it's based on maybe, well, you know, the whole Easter Métis thing. I don't, you know, uh, you know, people fraudulently stealing identity. So we have a problem with that in federal corrections, just like they do in universities and academia and stuff. So trying to change that, I actually have a human rights complaint against my employer, against the Public Service Commission for not caring whether somebody's actually Indigenous or not, and just caring that they tick the box. And so we're getting a lot of people who know that you just have to tick the box and it'll uh, allow you an opportunity to access uh, different jobs in federal corrections that impact on Indigenous people. And unfortunately, these are not Indigenous people. These are colonial thinkers who are bringing colonial ideas and imposing them on Indigenous people. So lots needs to change in both youth and adult. Wow. And when you think about MNBC and the, and the role it can play and kind of your role in Chilliwack, what are some things that you've been maybe working on or, or you're, you're hoping to work on to bring those supports? Well, it's funny. I, I sent a letter to the commissioner in Ottawa sharing some of my concerns. And I sent it as a private person. I didn't send it from my work email because this is a personal Métis issue I wanted to bring up, Indigenous issue. So I sent it from my home email. And I said, here's who I am. I'm doing this on my own time. I'm also president of Chilliwack Métis. And I shared some of my concerns that I just shared with you. And the response I got back was the usual kind of, we don't tolerate racism and, you know, and stuff like that in service. Oh, and by the way, I think you're in a conflict of interest as president of Chilliwack Métis. (laughs) And I was like, conflict? Where's the conflict? Like, I'm personally profiting on any of this. And I said, it's that cooperation of interest from my perspective, because we both want what's best for Métis people, presumably. I know I do. Can't speak for them. But they say they want what's best for Métis people. So that's a cooperation of interest. That's not a conflict of interest. So that's the response I get when I try to bring forward ideas. So I feel like I'm talking to a brick wall. They said, oh, I'll have you speak to the senior deputy commissioner. That's the number two person in Canada, in our department, that person downgraded me or downloaded me to the non-Indigenous person who runs Indigenous corrections for the entire country. And so we had a little Zoom conversation about what my concerns were. And I don't know if that's ever going to make it up to the right ears, to the people that can make the change. You know, so I'll just keep screaming and yelling and stuff for the next three to four years and try and change things as best I can before I leave. I'm retiring in four years from that. I'll have 25 years in at that point. I'm not seeking promotions. I don't need pats on the back. I don't need publicity. I don't, I don't need any of that stuff. I just want to see things change for the better for, for our people. And 21 years in, things are actually worse today than they were when I started in 2001. Yeah. So the parents that are listening, those that have heard the story and maybe have something similar going on in their lives, or maybe a nephew or a niece or cousin, you know, or, or you know, family friend, whatever it is, what's your advice to, to maybe, a, you know, a parent, an uncle, you know, someone that could lend a hand? What, what would you say to them? I've had that happen. It happens all the time. People reach out to me through social media and they say, oh, I read Nick's story and I've got a similar situation. And My advice to them is do everything you can to make sure the Ministry of Children and Families does not get their hooks into your child. 
Because once they do, all bets are off. Likewise, in the federal system or in the court system for adults, do anything you can to not allow yourself to be put in a position where other people are making decisions over your life. The instant you get a custodial sentence or even probation or parole, you put yourself in the hands of other people. And sometimes you get some really good people. There are a lot of really good people that work in MCFD, especially frontline social workers and in corrections, correctional officers, frontline parole officers and people like that. But the system takes over and the rules take over. And you get bad people working in those systems within those rules who interpret them in very black and white language and don't see you as an individual. That's why I called it a meat grinder earlier because that's, that's what happens. They don't see you as individuals. They just see you as another number. So my advice to parents is get your child help before it ever gets to that stage. And that's what I keep harping on with the province. I keep saying to the province, we need access to programs before the courts, before we hit the courts, because even if somebody's done a crime while they're high, to me, that's not them doing the crime. That's them acting in an unusual way due to the impact of the drugs. Let's get them some treatment and get them, get them in their ASAP. And, and this government's doing a better job. I wish they would move faster, especially on that Métis Nation justice strategy. I wish that we would have greater support from the provincial and federal government at Métis Nation BC, though, to be able to help our people access those programs to be able to kind of help them navigate. That was the big thing for me as a parent. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know I needed to go talk to a social worker or something like that to try and find programs. Well, there weren't any programs, but so greater access to programs through MNBC and having them assist in navigating. I think that's kind of key. That's the first place I turned for my son. And like I said, Tanya wanted to help. She's a great person and she wanted to help, but she couldn't. We got to sort of see that change. So when a Métis parent says, my my child is struggling, uh, we can say, we've got this, we got that, we got that. You know, here's here's three options. Pick what's best. Let's, let's do it, right? It would have been nice for me to be able to say, my son's addicted. There's a program in Campbell River that can help with that. Can we do this? Without ever going to court and having it imposed as a condition and having a record till you're 18 and things like that. So to me, that's key is just getting access to the programs. And that's through the federal and provincial funding. That's what we need. We can't just have bake sales and trying to raise enough money to support these youth. We need sustained funding that we can count on each year so we can have that momentum build up where people just get used to when I need help, I know I can call this person at NBC. When I need this kind of help, I can call that person. Some great advice. And I love seeing all the programs that are developing and growing and just the lines that are available at the moment. So for us at Chilliwack Metis, one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to strengthen that relationship between elders and youth. We're getting better with the elders. We're having monthly elder gatherings. So we're starting to grow our elder base and they're getting to know each other. Where we're still not quite where we need to be is on the youth side. We have 550 youth in the school district here. And I don't have any clue who most of them are because we don't have enough stuff going on for youth. The school district, we don't have a presence on their Indigenous Advisory Committee, an active presence, I should say. 
which we're trying to change. And once we get that, I want to start trying to link elders and youth together. Because I really believe in that that sort of power of, um, like I had a really great relationship with my grandmother. My grandmother, I was probably closer to her than my mom at certain times growing up. Definitely, I ran away there a lot. You know, I ran away from home and I'd go to grandma's, right? <laughs> so, and Nick was very similar like that too. He gravitated to both his grandmothers. Actually, he had three grandmothers, four grandmothers. And he gravitated to at least three of them because one of his grandmothers passed away when he was quite young. But his grandma, Pat, you know, he, he loved very dearly. That was his mom's mom. And then my mom as well. I could see the way he connected with her was different than how he connected with me. So I really believe in that intergenerational power of connecting grandparents and youth. So I want to see that improve in Chilliwack. We're trying to take steps towards that. We're happy with a lot of the funding that's coming to the communities to help strengthen those types of things. COVID is the biggest thing getting in the way right now and the lack of presence on the school district advisory committee. Yeah. Wow. This has been uh, quite the experience. I, I really appreciate that you've shared your story. You've had the courage to share this. And, and on top of that, it really sounds like you've got some ideas and some thoughts and some kind of really practical support and ideas and what, what people can do going forward. That's really helpful. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, anytime. It's a tough topic to discuss. Like I say, sometimes I can get through without having any breakdowns. Like I said earlier, he, uh, his presence at Coast Bite, I know it is. We saw it with his cat meow in there earlier. So I really believe that's my last living connection to him. He picked uh, his cat out, Carl. That's his cat's name. Back, it was probably when he was 14. And his mom and I had separated. And so I, he had a he had dogs at his mom's. And I said, well, do you want to get a cat? He loved cats. Cats just kind of gravitated towards him. I remember him sitting down in the parking lot of our townhouse complex, cross-legged in the middle. And I was like, why are you sitting in the middle of the parking lot like that? And I looked out the window and all of a sudden these cats came out of nowhere, like four or five of them. And they just kind of all started circling around him as he was sitting there rubbing up against him. And he just sat there and let them do it, right? I was like, it was the strangest thing. It's like he was like Dr. Doolittle for cats or something. So we went and got a, adopted a cat from the SPCA and I wanted to get the, the girl. There was a boy and a girl. They were brother and sister. And I went close to the cage and the boy tried to well, kind of growled at me. And the girl came up and was purring. So I said to Nick, I go, I think the girl's more friendly. You should go pick the girl. And he went out to where the cages were and I was doing all the paperwork in the SPCA and then uh, he came back in and goes, I think I want the the boy. He's got more, I forget how he worded it. I think he said, he's got more chill or something. I don't know, something along those lines. I said, okay, well, it's your cat. So you get to pick. And the cat's name was Charlie at the time, but he renamed him Carl. So he's like a living connection to my son, right? Because he picked him. And so every morning he comes in and, you know, when I'm waking up at 520 and he starts purring in my ear because he wants treats. And wakes me up and I almost feel like I'm having a conversation with my son when I pet the cat. Animals help when it comes to grief and wellness, things like that, right? You know, those animals they have for, uh, you know, those special animals that people have with the vests on, right? Carl's like that for me, right? He's a, I forget what the term is for those dogs or animals, but 
that's what the cat is for me. He brings my blood pressure down. He brings the anxiety down. That's awesome. So, and he does weird things like he was doing earlier. Yeah. Peter, that's incredible, incredible story. And, and it's amazing we have cats yeah. in this world. Yeah. The best. That's really special. I think, I think this story and this show and this recording and, and you inspiring others and, and all those that are listening and watching this right now, I think it's very honoring to Nick. So really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad you guys called and glad to participate anytime. Thank you for joining us on uh, the show this week. Thanks. This has been the Métis Speaker Series podcast. I'm Darian Kovacs. Thanks to Métis Nation BC for making this possible with funding provided by the Civil Forfeiture Office's Indigenous Healing Stream. You can listen to all of our episodes, learn more about the podcast, and sign up to the Métis Nation of BC newsletter to stay up to date on Métis news at Métis Podcast Series. Ca. You can find out more about the music we're playing by Love Life by visiting SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash lovelifeofficial, L-U-V-L-Y-F official, and link in the show notes for your convenience. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening device. See you again soon. Mina Kawapa Mitten. Thank you. Marcy for listening. <laughs>